Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Prologue, January 20th. It had to be a joke. Being hazed on the first day of work was nothing new, but John Gutierrez had never thought someone would have the balls to prank him on this first day, on Inauguration Day. One simply did not haze the President of the United States. Murray, I'm not finding the humor in this, John said. The country has some very serious issues to deal with, and this goes beyond the realm of good taste. Murray Longworth looked surprised. A joke? This is no joke, Mr. President. Of course it was. John Gutierrez hadn't been born yesterday. He looked around the Oval Office, gauging the reaction from his key advisors. Tom Maskell, his twitchy deputy chief of staff, was trying and failing to look nonplussed. Secretary of Defense Donald Martin sat back on an antique couch, his legs crossed. Donald was old-school Washington, tall, white, graying hair, tailored suit, looked like he was made of plantation money. Chief of Staff Vanessa Colburn sat on a striped chair. In appearance, she was Donald's polar opposite, female, black, and young. Her no-nonsense poker face carried a cold stare that could freeze you where you stood. At that moment, that stare was fixed directly on one Murray Longworth, Deputy Director of the CIA. Murray also had an old-school Washington look, but different from Donald's. Murray's suit looked expensive, too, but, like its owner, it seemed a bit rumpled and tired. Murray was past retirement age, slightly overweight, with a scowl permanently etched into his face. His was a familiar image among the dinosaurs of Washington, a look Vanessa had dubbed the Cold War white man. He was a CIA deputy director, but not the deputy director. Murray worked mostly behind the scenes. I've heard a lot about you, Murray, John said. I spoke to all five former presidents before I took office. Of the many nice things they had to say, there was only one person they each pointed out by name. You. They said that you're a, how shall I put this, a special kind of go-to guy. Yes, Mr. President, Murray said. Now, it seems they all pointed you out for a reason, to set me up for this ridiculous story about Trangler growths infecting Americans and turning them into psychopathic killers. Sir, Murray said. I assure you, this is no joke. Then why haven't we heard anything about it before? Vanessa asked, her voice almost as expressionless as her face. President Hutchins wanted this in the black, Murray said. And keeping things in the black is what I do. Murray had brought in a large flat panel screen for his presentation. It looked out of place in the Oval Office, a brash piece of technology in a room designed to reek of history and tradition. John stared at the image frozen on that screen. An old woman, clearly dead. A lumpy blue triangular growth on her shoulder. Each side of the triangle was about an inch long. It wasn't on her skin or under it, but part of it. Beneath the photo, her name. Charlotte Wilson. According to Murray, that growth had made Wilson murder her son with a butcher knife, then attack two police officers before they shot her to death in self-defense. This wasn't just a joke. 
It was inexcusable. Based on the endorsements of the former presidents, John had saved Murray Longworth's Project Tangram presentation as the last of the day. It was the closing act in a mind-boggling cache of the previous administration's secrets, two stealth submarines resting on the bottom of the Sea of Japan, ready to rain nukes on North Korea, two more subs sitting off Qatar, ready to first strike Iran should the new government fall and fundamentalists get their finger on the nuclear button. Secret deals with the Chinese government. A Mach 10 Skunk Works strike fighter that could fly 40 miles above the Earth. Fast-track deals for drilling in Alaska and off the coast of Florida. And a dozen other tawdry dealings that, under Hutchins' administration, had been business as usual. If I could finish the presentation, sir, Murray said, things might be a little clearer. John looked at Vanessa, then Donald. They both shrugged. John sighed and nodded to Murray to continue. Thank you, sir, Murray said. The disease was discovered about four months ago by CDC epidemiologist Dr. Margaret Montoya and her colleague Dr. Amos Braun. Both are still on the project. Symptoms begin with itching and small rashes that grow into large welts, then finally triangular-shaped blue growths. The disease also seems to create extreme paranoia in its victims, to the point where almost all subjects showed a definitive pattern of avoiding hospitals, healthcare workers, or members of law enforcement. Paranoia towards police and military was particularly severe. Most victims either died of unknown causes, committed suicide, or were killed by law enforcement as a result of psychotic behavior. Wait a minute, Vanessa said. The parasite made them avoid hospitals. Aggressive behavior from some chemical imbalance is one thing, but you expect us to believe that these parasites actually modified a host's decision-making ability. It happens in nature all the time, Murray said. But these are people, Vanessa said. Behavior is merely a chemical reaction, ma'am, Murray said. Trust me, there is zero question. Vanessa's face showed just how much she trusted Murray's opinion. Is this supposed parasite contagious? Murray shook his head. As far as we can tell, It does not transmit from an infected host to other people. Something spreads the disease, however, and we haven't figured out what that vector is. So Americans can catch a parasite that turns them into killers, she said. And yet you guys kept people in the dark. President Hutchins opted to keep this information secret, yes, Murray said. He feared that reports could cause panic, as well as a flood of false cases into hospitals that could impede our ability to find real victims. There's also the threat of a lynch mob mentality that could result in grave harm to Americans guilty of nothing more than having poison ivy or psoriasis. Vanessa leaned back in her chair and threw up her hands in disgust. You see, Mr. President, this is why the last eight years have crippled America. The old guard never trusted the people. This is exactly why we're here, to put an end to government run as a web of lies. I understand you're enthusiastic about implementing new policies, Murray said. But if you don't mind a little advice, Miss Colburn, you might want to get the whole story before you dismiss the calculated decisions of a former president. Vanessa sat forward again and glared at him. John couldn't suppress a small smile. Murray Longworth was taking a tone with Vanessa Colburn right off the bat. John wondered how long Murray would last. By all means, Vanessa said, smiling her best saccharine smile. Please, continue. Charlotte Wilson was just the first case we discovered, Murray said. He pointed a remote control at the screen. Click. Gary Leland. 
an old man, very much alive, with hateful eyes that would have commanded full attention were it not for the one-inch-wide bluish triangle on his neck. This man checked into the hospital, then hours later set his hospital bed on fire. He burned alive. Click. Martin Brubaker, a corpse on a morgue table, covered with blackened, third-degree burns, legs cut off below the knees. This man killed three people, his wife, his six-year-old daughter, and when we tried to apprehend him, a CIA agent named Malcolm Johnson. Click. Blaine Tannerieve, a charred, rotted corpse, little more than a skeleton coated with gossamer green fibers. This one also killed his family, Murray said. We found him after he died. John stared at the last picture. He wasn't smiling anymore. What happened to him? Murray looked at the picture for a moment, then turned back to face John and his staff. Once the hosts die, their bodies decompose at an extremely advanced rate. Corpses break down to nothing but a blackened skeleton in less than two days. John watched Donald, Vanessa, and Tom. That had always been his strength, the ability to watch people, to understand them from facial expressions, posture, movement. Tom looked like he wanted to vomit. Donald clearly believed. Vanessa was starting to, and in believing, Vanessa grew more and more angry. Most people wouldn't have seen it, but John knew her better than most. A secret like this, kept from the American people, she would want someone's head. Unfortunately for Murray Longworth, that head would likely be his. Click. Perry Dossie, a giant of a man, lying in a hospital bed, eyes closed, chest exposed, arms and legs locked down with heavy canvas straps, a black, oozing sore on his right collarbone, white bandages covering his right forearm, tubes going into his nose and arms. Perry Dossie, Donald said. I know that name. Isn't he that football player who went crazy and murdered his friend? Scary Perry Dossie? Murray nodded. Dossie's the only known survivor. He had seven parasites, which he cut out of himself, removing the final one five weeks ago. Jesus Christ, Vanessa said. Look at this body count, and you kept it secret? What are you, some kind of monster? Now it was Murray's turn to smile a little. John immediately disliked that expression. It was the smile of a hunter. Murray Longworth loved the game, and he was used to winning, no matter what the cost. Funny you should mention monsters, Murray said. We put together a team to investigate the situation, led by CIA operative Dew Phillips. Through Phillips's work, we discovered that the parasites leave the human host and become free-moving organisms. If the Oval Office hadn't had such a nice rug, you could have heard a pin drop. Murray, John said, talking slowly, choosing his words carefully. Are you telling us that these triangular growths hatch out of people? That's correct, Mr. President, Murray said. We even refer to them as hatchlings. And then what? Donald said. Do they walk on their own or something? That's correct, Mr. Secretary, Murray said. Not only do they walk, they operate as a unit. Hatchlings tried to build and activate a construct that we believe is either some kind of gateway or a weapon. This is footage shot by Army soldiers in Wajamiga, Michigan. Murray cued the video. The quality was fairly good. John saw soldiers, woods, and then something deeper in the woods, 
something glowing. It looked like a big archway, maybe 20 feet high at the apex, a glowing wedding ring half buried in the muddy forest floor. Inside of that, he could see three more arches, each smaller, each farther back. It was like looking into a glowing cone. And creatures, scurrying over the arches like termites on a rotten log. A strange skin growth was one thing, but this, this wasn't even remotely possible. John felt a cold tingle wash over his skin. If this was real, then it had to be, what, aliens, demons? This just couldn't be happening. No way, Vanessa said. There's no way that's real. Why are you wasting the president's time with special effects? It's real, ma'am, Murray said. John leaned forward for a closer look, his ass barely on the edge of his chair. Just what the hell are these things supposed to be? Hatchlings, Murray said. You get a better look right about now. The video grew shaky as the hatchlings suddenly rushed forward to attack. The shot angled sharply before the first creature reached the troops, probably as the soldier shooting the footage dropped the camera. Murray paused it there. John stared at a tilted close-up of a pyramid-shaped creature with angry, vertical black eyes and tentacles for legs. Again, total silence. John Gutierrez had made a career out of sizing people up. That innate skill had taken him from mayor to state senator. It had been key in adding Vanessa to his staff. When he met her, he knew. Her skill and ruthlessness had guided him from state senate into Congress and now the White House. An amazing feat, considering that John was 46 years old and the nation's first Hispanic president. John Gutierrez trusted his eyes, his instincts, and now those tools told him that Murray Longworth wasn't bullshitting anyone. This was real. What the hell are we dealing with, Murray? John asked. You're not going to tell me that these are aliens, are you? That's our best guess, sir, Murray said. The technology is way beyond anything we know. We suspect that the hatchlings are a form of biological machine designed to build the glowing structure. John wanted to kill Hutchins. The former president might as well have left a giant steaming pile of shit on the Oval Office rug. Now the problem rested squarely in John's lap, and no matter what happened, the public would associate this with his presidency, not Hutchins. Wajamiga, Donald said. Wait a minute. That's where the Osprey helicopter crashed back in December. Eight soldiers died. A cover story, Murray said. There was no crash. The eight soldiers died when we attacked and destroyed the gate. Donald looked around the room in disbelief, as if he were waiting for Vanessa or John or Tom to say gotcha. But no one did. Simply amazing, Vanessa said. She sounded sarcastic, but also quite shaken, and John couldn't blame her. The families of these brave men may never know the truth. They died in battle and we list it as a helicopter crash. How patriotic of us. So what's happened since then? Dossie needed serious medical care, Murray said. We had him in a VA hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Seems he recovered faster than expected, got access to a computer, hacked into the facility's database, and altered his security status. It's a bit embarrassing to say, but on January 8th, he just walked out. The parasites built something in his brain, 
some kind of mesh structure that lets him track down infected hosts. He found one that had just murdered three people. Dossie killed the man in self-defense. Before the man died, however, Dossie discovered the location of another gate in Mather, Wisconsin, Donald interrupted. The Osprey crash in Mather, 12 men dead. Murray nodded. Who knows about this? John asked. The whole story. Who knows? Well, the Joint Chiefs, Murray said. They had to implement President Hutchins' decision to sequester the soldiers involved and reassign them to a new unit. The soldiers themselves know they fought something unusual, but very few people know the whole story. Phillips, Montoya, Braun, Agent Clarence Otto, who's Montoya's CIA liaison, the CIA director, Hutchins, and a few members of his staff. What about the FBI? Vanessa asked. The CIA has no domestic police authority. You shouldn't be doing any of this. The FBI does not have detailed knowledge, Murray said. Once again, we were acting on the direct orders of President Hutchins. Vanessa stared at Murray and shook her head. John knew she had her sights set firmly on the man. She was going dinosaur hunting. It would be up to Murray to fend off her attacks and prove his worth. But how much more did the man need to prove? A behavior-altering human parasite. At least two military operations on U.S. soil that resulted in casualties. What might very well be alien machines. And no one knew. The media didn't even have an inkling. John now understood why his predecessors raved about Murray Longworth. We still don't really know what we're up against, Murray said. We haven't been able to capture one of the hatchlings alive. The ones we killed disintegrate very quickly, within a few hours. Even the gate material breaks down almost immediately, so that hasn't given us any information. How do we know that these things are truly hostile? Donald said. They attacked our troops, I understand. But could that be a defensive action, to protect this construct long enough for them to... I can't believe I'm even saying this out loud. Long enough for them to make contact. A race that technologically advanced could initiate at least a rudimentary communication, Murray said. The only logical reason they have it is that they don't want to. They build only in remote areas. Why not build whatever it is out in the open? Because if they did that, our military could surround them and prepare for whatever came through. That's not a problem unless you're bringing in your own military units. This seclusion indicates they want to insert assets, assets that could be vulnerable during the insertion process. A beachhead, Donald said. They want to control a landing zone, Murray nodded. That's our assessment, Mr. Secretary. And finally, look at the behavior of the infected victims. These parasites represent a level of bioengineering we can't even fathom. Could something capable of utilizing a human host like that accidentally create behavior that makes the host avoid contact with healthcare professionals or kill people very close to them, people who might see the welts and call for help? Murray stopped talking. He stood motionless, his hands by his sides. Donald, Vanessa, and Tom all turned to look at John. He took a long sip of water. What the fuck was he going to do with Hutchins' little going-away present? He set the water down. Donald, John said, in your position as Secretary of Defense, 
Do you think these things are hostile? Donald nodded. Based on what we've been told, yes. He looked at Vanessa. And you? She looked as if it pained her to say the words. I would also agree, but based on what we've been told, Mr. President, we have to go public with this. Are you fucking nuts? Murray said. He looked at everyone in the room, then stood a little straighter. My apologies for my outburst, but this is a bad time to go public. Dr. Montoya is developing a test that will detect the disease. We have Philip's team in place, and we're actively seeking additional hosts. Trust the people, Vanessa said. We need to tackle this as a nation. John leaned back in his chair. Nothing like a major, possibly historical decision to kick off his presidency in style. Murray, John said. How long until the test is ready? We can't say for sure, Murray said. At least a week, but we won't know if it works until we find more hosts. Opening up this can of worms to the public, now might not be the time. Murray Longworth had kept things secret for five administrations. John imagined he could do the same for a sixth. Two weeks, John said. I want two weeks to evaluate the situation. Let's get that test working and move from there. And Murray, keep this thing quiet. Murray nodded. He looked pleased, as if somehow he'd known all along that this was how the meeting would turn out. John couldn't miss his small smile. John could also see that Vanessa hadn't missed it either. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts day one tad takes a leap they were going to get him. Tad wasn't going to let that happen, even if he had to kill himself. The window slid open. Curtains blew back, thrown by the same nighttime wind that splashed cold rain and bits of ice into the face of Thaddeus Tad McMillan Jr. He hoped his little brother wouldn't wake up. When Sam woke up, he cried loud. Real, real loud. His cries always brought mom and dad mom and dad, who wanted to get Tad. 
Tad got down off his toy box. He picked up the box and lugged it over to his brother's crib. Carrying it hurt the blisters on his hands, but he had to stand in the toy box to reach inside the crib, just like he needed it to reach the sliding window's latch. Tad set the box down next to the crib, stood on top, and reached in to pull the blankets up tight under the baby's chin. That would keep Sam warm. Tad gently brushed his brother's hair, then leaned in and kissed the baby on the forehead. Goodbye, Tad whispered. He got down and lugged the box to the window one last time. Good luck, Sam, Tad said quietly, looking back at his brother. I really hope you don't wind up like Sarah. Tad held onto the window frame as he put his feet up on the metal sash. Freezing rain instantly soaked his shirt. Bits of wet ice stung his face. A gust of wind almost blew him back, but he adjusted his balance and held on. It was better this way. Anything was better than staying here. Tad McMillan jumped into the night. Ogden gets ready to rumble. Not too far outside of South Bloomingvale, Ohio, in the hushed darkness of winter woods, Colonel Charlie Ogden stood tall behind a loose line of nine men. The men were his personal squad, 5th Platoon, X-Ray Company, Domestic Reaction Battalion. X-Ray Company was the unit's official name, but in the usual testosterone-stoked spirit of the military, the men called themselves something else. They called themselves the Exterminators. The boys had even come up with a unit insignia, a lightning bolt hitting an upside-down cockroach. They wore it on their right shoulder. Under it, they added small black triangle patches for each combat mission and decorated the triangle with a white X for each monster killed. Ogden's sleeve had two black triangles. The first triangle wore two white X's. That was because Colonel Charlie Ogden didn't sit in a Hummer miles from the action. He led from the front. And when you lead from the front, sometimes you have to fight. But that didn't mean he was stupid. His personal squad was the best of the exterminators, men who could chew rusty Buicks and shit stainless steel nails. The 5th platoon of any company usually consisted of support staff, drivers, armors, mostly non-combat troops. But since Ogden could do just about whatever he wanted, he'd given himself a personal guard that could jump into a fight at any time. On Ogden's left stood Corporal Jeff Cope, his 10 pounds too heavy communications man. On his right, the swarthy Sergeant Major Lucas Mazzagatti, his top NCO. Behind him, observing, stood the overly tanned Captain David Lodge, commander of Whiskey Company, and Lodge's massive, intense Sergeant Major, Devin Nails Nielsen. Give me an update, Corporal, Ogden said. Third platoon will be in position due west of the target in 10 minutes, Cope said. Fourth will take up security position to the northwest of the target in 20 minutes. First and second platoons in position just ahead of us, sir. The 120 men of X-Ray Company were almost ready. Excellent, Ogden said. Air support? Predator drones to northeast of target, Cope said. Four Apaches on station one mile out. Target is painted. The Apaches can destroy it at any time. Two F-15Es with GBU-31s on station five miles out. Two more F-15s in reserve seven miles out. Very well. He turned to face Captain Lodge. How about you, David? Whiskey Company's a mile due west, Colonel, Lodge said. We're ready to go. Nielsen leaned forward to speak, 
or more accurately, for his six-foot-three frame, he leaned down. Any chance we'll get in on this one, sir? He said it a bit loudly for Ogden's taste. But for Nielsen, that was a whisper. His regular speaking voice was three or four times that of a normal man's, and his shout would make you look for a place to hide. Nails, Ogden said. The only way whiskey's involved is if we're overrun and I drop bombs on our own position. Then you guys come in to clean up whatever's left. So let's hope you get to take the night off. Lodge, I want you and Nails back with your men 20 minutes before the attack begins. Nielsen returned to an at-ease stance. He looked disappointed. Lodge tried not to look relieved, but he clearly was. Lodge was an exceptional pencil pusher, but perhaps not a true warrior soul. Only one question remained. What new tricks did the little bastards have in store? Ogden looked through his night vision binoculars, taking in all the details of their objective 200 yards due north. He stared at the glowing, now familiar shape. It consisted of two 20-foot-long parallel objects that resembled big logs lying side by side. The log structures led into a set of four curving arches, the first about 10 feet high, the next three successively larger, with the final arch topping out at around 20 feet. All of the objects, both logs and arches, had an irregular, organic surface. But something was different this time. The last two times he'd seen such a structure, all the pieces had been much thicker. Thicker logs, thicker arches. This one looked kind of anorexic. Mud surrounded the thing, the result of snow melted by the structure's heat. The first two constructs had put off a huge heat bloom. Satellite readouts had measured them both at around 200 degrees Fahrenheit. This one held a steady 110 degrees. And one other key difference. The first construct, in Wajamega, Michigan, had shown action, something going on inside the cone, only an hour after heating up. This one had been hot for almost three hours. But there was still no movement. At Wajamega, they'd seemed to catch the hatchlings off guard. The creatures had been crawling all over the construct, and when they detected Ogden's men, they'd attacked. The battle had been something out of a nightmare. Pyramid-shaped monsters sprinting forward on black tentacle legs, rushing right into automatic weapons fire. Some of the monsters made it past the bullets, forcing his men into brutal, close-quarters fighting. Eight men died. Three weeks after Wajamiga, Perry Dossie had discovered another construct in the deep woods near Mather, Wisconsin. Ogden's primary objective was to capture or destroy the Mather construct before it could activate, but the brass had given him a secondary objective, capture a living hatchling. However, that time, it was the hatchlings that caught the exterminators off guard. The creatures had actually set up a perimeter about 100 yards around the construct. They'd been hiding up in the damn trees. His men literally walked right under the things. When the exterminators closed to about 75 yards from the construct, the hatchlings had dropped down and attacked from behind. As soon as they dropped, the construct activated. In the confusion of hand-to-hand, Ogden had no idea of the enemy's numbers. The whole unit might have been overrun, so he didn't hesitate. He called in air support to make sure he completed the primary objective. Apache rockets tore the thing to pieces. That hadn't left much to study. Not that it mattered. Just like at Wajamiga, the broken pieces of construct dissolved into pools of black goo within hours of the Apache strike. His men also failed to capture a hatchling, 
but Ogden wasn't about to lecture them. It was a little much to expect men ambushed by monsters to worry about anything other than survival. Twelve men died in that fight. From a purely tactical perspective, casualties weren't a problem. Charlie Ogden's unit was so far into a secret black budget that even light probably couldn't escape. He needed replacements. He got them. He needed equipment. Whatever he wanted, including experimental weapons, even 10-stinger surface-to-air missiles, just in case some flying thing came out of those gates. Resupply, transport, air support? Same deal. Ogden took orders from Murray Longworth. Murray interfaced directly with the Joint Chiefs and the President. It was a heady bit of power, truth be told. No requisition, no approval. Just tell Corporal Cope to place a request, and things showed up as if by magic. The blank check for men and equipment was key to mission success. So was an open-ended flexibility that let him move instantly, without orders, without approval, to wherever the danger might lie. He had to be flexible and fast, because the Mather engagement showed a clear change in hatchling tactics. They had expected an infantry assault. They had learned from the first encounter, learned and adapted. That chewed at Ogden's soul. His men had killed all the hatchlings in Wajamiga, and they hadn't found anything that might be communication equipment. So how had the Wajamiga hatchlings communicated with the Mather hatchlings? Despite the change in tactics, the hatchlings still lost at Mather, which meant they'd likely change tactics again. So what was Ogden facing this time? His men had scanned the trees, scanned everything. Normal vision, night vision, infrared, advanced scouts. Nothing other than the hatchlings and the construct. No picket line. No perimeter. Ogden couldn't figure it out. They seemed to be waiting for his men to come in. He had his objectives, his attack options. The first option, use infantry to take the construct intact. Should that fail, hit it with the second option, Apache rockets. If needed, the Strike Eagles would deliver the third option, dropping enough 2,000-pound bombs to turn a one-square-mile patch of Ohio into a burning crater. That would kill all his men and Ogden himself. But if it came to that, they'd already have been overrun. Should that third option fail, the president would have no choice but to authorize what had been dubbed simply option number four. And Charlie Ogden really didn't want to think about that. He checked his watch again. 50 minutes. Normally, he'd attack as soon as the men were in position. He could still do that if he saw the need. But this time, things were going to be a little different. This time, he'd have an audience. A career-making audience. The kind that can move him from a colonel's eagle to a general star. Charlie raised the night vision goggles again and stared at the glowing construct. He hoped Murray could keep things on schedule on his end. Because in 50 minutes, president or no president, Charlie Ogden was going in. Ted, meet Mr. Dossie. Tad shivering brought him out of it. He rolled on the grass, wondering if he was already dead. His shoulder hurt real bad. He didn't feel dead. He was still moving. When people jumped out of windows on TV, they hit the ground and didn't move. He rolled to his butt. Cold water seeped into the seat of his jeans. Tad slowly stood. His legs hurt real bad, too. He took a deep breath, 
the rain and bits of ice splashing inside his wide-open mouth. He looked up at the second-story window open to the night sky. Weird. Seemed like such a big drop from up in his room, but from down here, it was about as high as a basketball hoop. It didn't matter how high it was or wasn't. He was out. Out of the house. Okay, so he wasn't dead, but he wasn't going back in there either. Tad ran. His legs hurt, but they worked, and that was enough. He sprinted out to the side of the road and turned left. He pounded down a sidewalk cracked by tree roots and slick with slush. He sprinted hard. He looked up, just before running headlong into a man. A huge man. Tad stopped, frozen on the spot. The man was so big that Tad momentarily forgot about the house, his mom, his dad, his sister, even little Sam. The man stood there, lit by a street lamp that formed a cone of mist and light and wind-whipped streaking rain. He looked down out of glowering blue eyes. He wore jeans and a wet, short-sleeved gray t-shirt that clung to his enormous muscles like a superhero costume. Long, matted blonde hair covered his head and face like a mask. A big, baseball-sized twisted scar marred the skin of his left forearm. The giant man spoke. Are you... His voice trailed off. His eyes narrowed for a moment. Then they opened, just like he'd remembered something very cool. Are you... Tad? Tad nodded. Tad, the man said. Do you feel... Itchy? Tad shook his head. The man turned his right ear toward Tad, tilted his head down a bit, as he might have done if Tad was whispering and he was trying to hear. This is important, the man said. Are you sure? Are you really, really sure you're not itchy? Not even a little? Tad thought about this carefully, then nodded again. The man knelt on one knee. Even kneeling, he still had to bend his head to look Tad in the eye. The man slowly reached out with a giant's hand, placing his palm gently on Tad's head. Thick fingers curled down around Tad's left temple and cheek, while a thumb as big as Tad's whole fist locked down on his right cheek. Tad kept very, very still. The man turned Tad's head back and to the right. Tad, what happened to your eye? Tad said nothing. Tad, don't piss me off, the man said. What happened to your eye? Daddy hit me, the man's eyes narrowed again. Your daddy hit you? Tad nodded, or tried to. He couldn't move his head. The man stood. Tad barely came up to his belt. The man let go of Tad's head and pointed back the way Tad had come. Is that your house? Tad didn't need to look. He just nodded. How did you leave? Jumped out the window, Tad said. Run along, Tad, the man said. He reached behind his back and pulled out a long piece of black metal, bent at one end. Tad recognized it from when he and his family were on that trip to Cedar Point last summer, when Dad had to fix a flat. It was a tire iron. The man walked down the road, heading for Tad's house. Tad watched him for a few seconds. Then he remembered that he was running away and what he was running away from. He sprinted down the sidewalk. He made it one block before he stopped again. Who knew running away would have so many distractions? First that great big superhero man, and now a car accident. 
a fancy red and white Mustang, and a little white hatchback, smashed head-on. The Mustang's trunk was open. The little white car's driver's side door was also open. The inside light of the hatchback shone on a man lying motionless, his feet still next to the gas pedal, his back on the wet pavement. The man had blood all over his face, and he was holding a gun. There was another man in the passenger seat, not moving, leaned forward, face resting on a deflated airbag. Over the pouring rain and the strong wind, Tad heard a small voice. Report, the voice said. God damn it, Claude, report. Tad knew he should just keep running. But what if his parents came after him? Maybe he needed that gun. Tad walked up to the man lying on the pavement. Rain steadily washed the blood off the man's face and onto the wet black concrete. Bomb, where are you? The voice was coming from a little piece of white plastic lying next to the man's head. It was one of those ear receivers, just like they used on Frankie Anvil, his favorite TV show. Maybe this man was a cop, like Frankie. Cops would take him away, protect him from mom and dad. Tad looked at the earpiece for a second, then picked it up. Hello? Bob, is that you? No, Tad said. My name is Tad. A pause. Tad, my name is Dew Phillips. Do you know where Mr. Baumgartner is? Uh, no, Tad said. Wait, does Mr. Baumgartner have a big black mustache? Yes, that's him. Is he there? Oh, Tad said. Well, he's lying on the ground here bleeding and stuff. Shit, Mr. Phillips said. Tad, how old are you? I'm seven. Are you the police? Another pause. Yeah, sure, I'm a policeman. Tad let out a long sigh. The police. He was almost safe. Tad, is there another man around? A man named Mr. Milner? I don't know, Tad said. Is Mr. Milner like really, really big? No, Mr. Phillips said. That's someone else. Oh, Tad said. Mr. Milner might be the short guy in the passenger seat, but he looks dead. Can you send someone to get me? I'm not going back home. Mr. Phillips spoke again. This time his voice was calm and slow. We'll send someone to get you right away. Tad, listen carefully. That really big man you talked about, is he there with you now? No, he's gone, Tad said. I think he's going into my house. Your house? Yes, sir. I live right down the street. Okay, hold on to that earpiece. We'll use it to find you. Give me your address. And then whatever direction you saw that big man walking, you run the opposite way and run fast. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.